Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you all and be with you all. I loved being led by Jen, Jordan, and Joyce just now. Oh, thanks, Jordan. This guy's always helping people. Well, I, it, was, it was beautiful to be led by them, uh, in large part for me, because we are all from the same church family. We're all from Biola as well. And I was thinking about the way Hume in its basic philosophy of ministry, partners with local churches. And I was struck as, as we've I mean, spent years together in the same local church, and now these three are serving up here and leading us so beautifully like that. And, and I get to be part with my family of Hume's ministry. I am so thankful for the partnership Hume has with local churches. And I was thinking this partnership isn't just when the churches send people up here. It's when churches are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry who then come up here and serve. You know, for years, churches are equipping people, not even sure where they'll end up serving, but they come to a place like Hume, and I, I just am so proud of these dear ones. You know, John says, I have no greater joy than my children are walking with the Lord, and you usually hear that to refer to the children in your home, but... That's actually not what John's referring to specifically. You can apply it to that. But John's talking about those children in his church, that spiritual children that he is so prayerful that they will walk with the Lord and so grateful when they do. And so when we get to gather like this and I see the way these young people are thriving and serving and blessing a ministry like Hume that they prepared for for years before they come, came up here. It was just amazing. And to see the way that we get to partner with churches when they do send their kids up here was amazing. I got to preach to the high school kids here in this very room all last week, and God was powerfully at work. It was just amazing to see it happen the way it did. I mean, the kids were locked in. You hear so many bad things about the, the young generation today these days. You know, they're on their phone and social media and distracted all the time, and they have all these challenges, but, but in the midst of it, I am so confident that God is at work in the lives of young people. There is a hunger and a desire to grow and to know him that is just a joy to interact with. God worked so powerfully this week. They were locked into the story of Daniel that we're preaching through this summer and what it means to be resilient followers of Jesus in an increasingly hostile culture. They, they couldn't have been tracking with it more. And, and when I gave them an opportunity to stand and trust Jesus on Thursday night, it was incredible the way they responded. There was one kid right here, actually, where my son is sitting, Sam. And, and when I said, with no hype, no drama, I just said, look, if you want to follow Jesus in saving faith for the first time, just stand up right now so I can pray for you. And this kid stood up, and he looked at me. His eyes locked in, and he just went like this. Like this. He's not his head. Yes, I do. It was just beautiful to see. And it, there are times where you just feel like God's carrying you and the ministry along in just amazing ways. And I told the counselors and youth pastors on Friday morning as we gathered, and we were just rejoicing over what God had done, that I was thinking about the way God uses us in spite of ourselves very often, and I told us, and I know they work so hard for years in the trenches with these kids, and then we come up in this, this intense temporary community, and God works in powerful ways, and you can just imagine him saying, I've been saying the same thing that doofus has been saying, and why didn't you respond that, right? And I totally get that. My friend Dave Talley took his seven-year-old daughter, Amanda, 
to a Salty the Singing Songbook concert. You guys remember Salty the Singing Songbook? If you don't know, it was this hilarious songbook that used to sing real Bible-based songs. And if you went to one of his concert, concerts, some dude was dressed up in this big puffy songbook thing, this foam songbook, and he would sing Bible songs. And, and then he preached the gospel, and he'd invite kids to come and trust Jesus at the Salty concert. And my friend Dave was there with his daughter Amanda. She was seven years old. And she gets up to go and trust Jesus with Salty. And Dave is thinking, this is not how I wanted my daughter to come to Christ. I'm imagining me and my wife and Amanda at the bedside. Thank you, Mom and Dad. for Salty. And he goes, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to trust Jesus with Salty. And he said, this is not how I envisioned it happening. I'm not, I'm, this is not my ideal here. And, and she said, but Daddy, I want to trust Jesus like Salty said. And he's like, all right, go ahead. And she goes, he goes down with her. And, she, and I told the counselors, I just feel like Salty the singing songbook, right? They're doing all the work before and after they come up here, but God just chooses to work in this sort of place. It's just amazing. I also want you to know that I am so impressed with Prayer is the foundation of any ministry. And not just prayer that happens here, which it does, is the foundation of the ministry. But I just want to share with you, this, this was just amazing. I got this Sunday, as I was coming up here, a friend of mine named Jeff Bradbury, who's had a lot of experience with Hume Lake through the years. I don't think he's been up here in quite a while. But he sent me this prayer <laughs> as I was coming up here to preach on Sunday and I want to read this to you, not just to hear the heart of this man, but to realize that the ministry, a ministry like Hume and in any ministry that God's using, is not just grounded in what happens here. In some ways, it's grounded even more than what happens here in faithful saints praying for God to work literally spread around the world. This guy lives hundreds of miles from here, but listen to what he prays. He just sent me this prayer. As I was coming up here on, on Sunday, Father, as Eric teaches at Hume this week, help him to be very close and intimate with you. May Eric, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Father, may your spirit fill Eric and go out of his mouth like a fountain of living water. Father, there are times when your spirit seems to be more intensely present, and it was this week. I ask for one of those times this week. May it not be Eric's cleverness or humor or funny stories or commanding voice or personality. May it, be, may it be your spirit, Father, that moves in these kids. I pray especially for the kids of my church who are going up. Father, please do something lasting. Please transform. Please create a settled intention in these kids. Father, please heal those that are broken. Cause these kids to question their friendship with the world. Father, I think of Herman Pettit, one of the founders prayerful man. You created a group of men that prayed relentlessly. Please do that again. Please show Hume that they must live and be fueled on prayer. Prayer today. And then he prays for the kids to be prayerful and meet weekly specific prayers. Once they get back to school, to pray with their friends weekly in that way. He says, please do that, Father, and start this week at, at Hume. Then he prays this beautiful prayer for my son he's been meeting with. It's just amazing to think that that Believers around the world are praying that way for this ministry. It's so humbling, isn't it? You know, and the, and the people who are up front are just salty the singing songbook that God's using because of that kind of prayer. 
Maybe I should even get one of them big foam costumes. I don't know. But isn't that amazing that there are godly people like out there undergirding a ministry like this? It's just a beautiful thing to see. Well, I want to preach this morning the first of the series I'm doing at the Hume Teaching Series this week. And the series is Knowing, Living, and Preaching the Gospel. I am deeply concerned that we Christians understand what the gospel is. It may seem silly to say that, like, well, what Christian doesn't know the gospel? You can't be a Christian if you don't know the gospel. And there's truth to that. But we can be forgetful people. And we can get something and then move on to other things that seem more pressing and urgent and relevant and contemporary and meaningful than the actual good news of God saving lost people through Jesus. You can't emphasize Christ crucified enough. You can't be too Christ-focused, Christ-exalting. And so I, I want to start the series by thinking about who Jesus is this morning. If you have your Bible, I'm reading out of the ESV if you have di digital options. And I'm going to just read the first eight verses of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And we're going to be thinking about what the gospel is. I, I wonder, I may be in Corinth. You know, Corinth was incredibly superficial and and about image and about uh, sensual pleasures dominating everything. Even their orators would, would be, they'd be all about impressive oration and appearance. And, and Paul was constantly countering that because church history says he, he was a very short, very bald, bow-legged, unattractive man. So he couldn't compete with the super apostles in Corinth. And he had to depend on the Spirit. He just didn't even have the option. And that's a good thing, not to even have the option of playing a superficial image game. And so, so he had to combat them with the Spirit and help the Corinthians see what really matters. I remember I talked to a man who's probably the world's leading expert on first century Corinth. And Bruce Winter, I, I met with him, and, and he said, so where are you from, Eric? He's from Australia. And I said... I'm from Southern California, and he said, ah, the 21st century Corinth. <laughs> and, and he knows, he knows. And, and so there can be an incredible superficiality to our lives, a, a desire to be impressive and give an image instead of realizing that we are all utterly dependent on God for everything. Every breath, every heartbeat, every brain wave, everything comes from him. And that's why he says to the Corinthians, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is nothing. I've got nothing. But we forget that so easily. And we play into a cultural game of image of superficiality, of things that don't have lasting value. And that can creep into our lives as believers in Jesus as well and as ministers of the gospel, which all Christians are. And so we have got to fight this battle of superficiality and, and live out of what God says is true about him and about us. It's incredibly important we're able to do that. And the best way to do it is get grounded in what the gospel is. And so that's what we're going to be doing all week. This is the first of a series we'll be doing on knowing, living, and proclaiming the gospel. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your precious word. 
Thank you that the spirit that inspired it is at work in our hearts and minds right now, illuminating our minds and transforming our hearts. And Lord, we come with eager expectation and hope, knowing you love to use your word. And so we pray you would do just that now. In each of our lives, thank you that the Holy Spirit knows us perfectly and has the power to transform each of us, every one of us, in just the ways we need to be changed this morning. And we pray he'd be doing that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 2.1 So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So we start off with intensely practical ways of living. Boy, we have those things on display in our culture constantly and abundantly, don't we? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And we are to be people radically different than those who live that way. But that's easier said than done. Those things are just alive and well in my heart. And I can live out of fleshly motives and activity constantly if I'm not vigilant to live a spirit-filled life. And then he tells us how you do that. Like newborn infants, don't think much of yourself. Think much of God. Think of yourself as a newborn infant. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for the pure spiritual milk. That's the word of God. And we are to see ourselves as newborn infants that the weavers have been taking care of. Joyce probably can understand this image better than anyone here, maybe, except if you're also in the situation she's in. Newborn infants long for pure, spiritual, pure physical milk, don't they? Regularly, relentlessly, pursuing nutrition. And that's how we need to be with the Word of God. It's so easy to get on with strategies and and innovative ways of doing things, which can be fine, but unless we're grounded in the Word, unless we are Bible people, we will get unmoored from the anchor that we have to live based in. That's the Bible. We've got to be Bible people. There is a breathtaking biblical illiteracy among God's people, even those raised in churches these days, even those who went to Christian schools very often. I get the most incredible young people on the planet that come to Biola University, and, and they've mostly come from good Christian families and sometimes Christian schools, but for some reason, they don't know the Bible very well at all. Some do, but the majority really don't. They know a lot more about what's going on on TikTok than in 1 Peter. And, and that is a troubling development. All the while, we're told by our culture that we're just a bunch of Bible thumpers. So we don't want to be Bible thumpers. Don't quote scripture. That's kind of simplistic, isn't it? No. No, we need to be Bible people. This needs to be the anchor of our lives. So like newborn infants crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. That by it, what will the result end up being? You may grow up into salvation. You know, salvation is a past, present, and future reality in the New Testament. It's used in all three ways to describe what God's doing in the life of the believer. We are saved from the power of sin. 
We are being saved from its ongoing effect on us, and we will ultimately be saved when Jesus returns and we're conformed to the image of Christ. But, but we need to move into this salvific process. It, there's a done component to it, an ongoing component, and a future completed component, and it, it has to be grounded in the Word of God as the Spirit used it. But then this is key, verse 3. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, I love that. The whole thing as a Christian begins with tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Oh, he is the God of all truth, but he's good. I have a colleague at Biola who wrote a book on the goodness of God because he's convinced that we tend to want to help people understand how truthful God and his word is, but we don't sufficiently help people understand how good he is. He's good. And I think increasingly people in our day don't care that much about truth. It doesn't mean we shouldn't. But you know what they care about? So what? Okay, so it's true. What, what difference does that make in my life? Now, that can be a short-sighted way of thinking, but we need to help people realize that God is good. And he, he is the greatest thing they will ever see, and he will bring a goodness to their lives that is profound. And so we have to taste and see and experience this. Experiential religion is really important. And I use the word religion. I, I know I'm writing a book, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And one of the things I think we should stop saying, this may make you angry with me, which should maybe tell you that you shouldn't be so committed to your cliches. Um, um, I think we should stop saying Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I know that's offensive to some of you because you've used that and it's helped you, and there's truth to it. The truth is it's centrally a relationship. It's what it is centrally, fundamentally, but it's a religion. It's an overstatement to say it's not a religion. It's a religion that is for the sake of a relationship. Right? It, it, I think we over-spiritualize things and make it very vague what it even means to be a Christian. You know, it's all about relationship. It's all about spiritual things. It's not about what you do. It's who you are. That's another chapter. It's both, right? And, and, and so we need to be devoted to religious practice like knowing the word and being prayerful people like Jeff Bradbury so that our relationship will be deep. And imagine if I went to Donna and if she said to me, you know, Eric, we haven't been on a date in three months, which actually may be the case. I'm not sure. I'm not going to even think about it right now. <laughs> Ouch. Um, if she said, we haven't been on a date in three months, she looked at me. Imagine if I said, oh, honey, it's not about a list of things to do. Checklist. Our relationship isn't about a checklist. Why are you being so legalistic about this? Right? Date. This is us, honey. This is communion. This is a spiritual connection we have. How do you think she'll think about that? Not very well. She'll say, look, bozo, we need to go on a date is what she'll say because you maintain relationship with religious practice, right? You, you do things religiously. It's not when you feel like it only. It's not when it, it's easy to do. We devote ourselves to the pure spiritual milk of the word and that's how we taste and see the Lord is good. 
It doesn't always feel like a feast or seem experientially like we're, we're experiencing something awesome, but it adds up to a deeper knowledge of God that helps us to see how good he is. And here we go, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That is who we follow. Jesus, the cornerstone, the precious, promised, necessary cornerstone to ground our lives in. He's the one we need to know. I actually do hear a lot about finding our identity in Christ in teaching and preaching and in the contemporary church. But here's my concern about that. We tend to focus on our identity in Christ and not enough on Christ. We rush to our identity. It's amazing to me how many different ways we're taught to be self-absorbed. And we, we love to think about ourselves, label ourselves, and there can even be helpfulness in this. Oh, man, I'm poking all kinds of things today. Um, uh, there may be helpfulness in the Myers-Briggs. There's probably helpfulness in something like that to find out these things about you. Some, some of you love that and are committed to it. That's fine. I suppose there may be helpfulness in knowing if you're an eight-wing seven, according to the Enneagram, which is mine, I'm told. My daughter told me what I was. I'm an eight-wing seven, apparently, which is the same numbers as Martin Luther King. So that's sort of cool but also of Adolf Hitler. So it could go a lot of different directions, you know? Um, sometimes, though, I think maybe these kinds of things, whether, whether even a gifts assessment survey that give us our job description, I don't even think the categories of extrovert and introvert exist. You know, they were invented by Carl Jung in the 1900s. Now I've ticked a lot of you off, right? Those are just things that may indicate certain ways we think and feel, but don't get stuck in these things. Don't get self-absorbed in these things. God calls us to be his people identified by who Jesus is, and sometimes I think the number we're assigned or the outcome of a test. I talked to a pastor this week. His church gifted him a five-hour test he took that printed out a 95-page report telling him who he was. I think this tells us who we are in Christ. And that's what we're going to unpack the rest of the week. And again, don't hear me say there isn't some value in these things. I just think it gets out of whack. Think of Moses saying to God at the burning bush, take on Pharaoh. Lord, I don't speak well. As if God doesn't know that. Today it would be, but Lord, I'm a four. <laughs> Which is not the kind you send to Pharaoh. 
And so I'm just trying to put it in perspective. I'm not saying there may not be some value in these things. It's just, it seems like we're so obsessed with ourselves and our little just descriptions of who we are that comes from all sorts of places besides Jesus very often that it can almost be like horoscopes. You know, we have a family member. We, we said, we're going to adopt a little girl when we adopted our daughter. And she said, when was she born? We said, March. And she said, Perfect. She's an Aries, you guys are an Aries, this is going to work out great. And sometimes I think we can actually operate in that kind of way, even as Christians. This is who I am, this is my, this is my doppelganger, this is the Disney princess I would be if I were a Disney princess. It's amazing. I haven't figured out which one I am yet. I hope it's Moana, I'm not sure. It's just amazing how easily we get fed self-absorbed sorts of ideas in that I am found in Christ. I remember when I graduated from college with a degree in philosophy, which means I did not have one job waiting for me. <laughs> and, and so I had a degree in philosophy, and you know what I ended up doing after my degree in philosophy? I had been playing football in college. I was one of the leaders in the Christian group. I, I was an RA. I was so active and involved and had a sense of importance from those things. And then I graduated, and I, I was going to Europe to play football, but months from then. And so I had nothing to do. So I, you know what I ended up doing after my degree in philosophy? Pumping gas when they used to do that. And I would substitute teach. And the students, I would sub, and I was coaching at the high school football, and they'd come in and I'd pump my students' gas. <laughs> and they'd say, what are you doing? I, I, I thought you graduated from college. I did. I did. <laughs> and I remember saying, is it okay with me during that time? When, when people say, what are you doing now? Say, pump a gas. Is that all right? Because... That sort of thing doesn't define me. That's not who I am. I am a child of God, forgiven by him and declared righteous by him because of the shed blood and perfect obedience of Jesus that is mine by faith in him. That's who I am, far more than any vocation that God may call me to for a while, any numbers you apply to me, any personality types, any grievous sin from my past, any uncertainty about the future. Who knows what tomorrow holds for me, but I know who holds tomorrow, and that's where my confidence lies. In him. Not all these things we so easily define ourselves by. Do you know psychologists did this experience? This is fascinating. They said, what we're going to do with these people they had is put a, a gross-looking scar with makeup on your neck. And then we're going to send you out to interact with people socially and see how they respond to you. And they put this horrible scar, they showed it to them in the mirror, and they said, oh, that's, that's horrible. And, and then they sent them out into society. 95% came back and said, people treated me differently. People avoided me. They were grossed out by me. They didn't want to talk to me. They were harsh to me because they assumed I must have had some violent past or something. It was a terrible experience. And then they told those people, well, remember before we sent you out, the makeup artist said, you know, it's starting to peel. Let me just fix it real quick. She didn't fix it. She took it off. You didn't have a scar when you were walking around. 
And so all of those perceptions about the way people were treating you because this, this scar on your neck was looming so large in your self-perception, it wasn't there. Isn't that amazing? We can walk through life with self-perceptions that aren't there. Some of them may be even good. I mean, I'm not sure which is worse, a negative self-perception or a positive one that you're putting all your identity on. That was Corinth. That's, that's Southern California. That's human nature. And so we've got to find who we are in Jesus. So who are you? We've got to know that Jesus is precious. When we gather like this, it's to know Christ. Whenever God's people gather, knowing Christ should be our goal in this way. And what we need to know is that Christ is precious. Oh, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one to find access through to God, but he is precious to us. That's what he's called in this passage. What, something precious is dearly loved and highly valued. And that's how Jesus is described here. He's precious in his person, and he's precious in his work. And that's because he is the revelation of God. And what God finds most precious is himself. That may sound weird to you, and he's the only one who is that way in a good way. No human being should find ourselves as the most precious thing to us. But that's because God is God and we are not. And if God valued anything more than himself and his glory on display, he wouldn't be God. This is tough for us to understand. What's more admirable than a, in a human than when glory comes to us and we deflect it? That's right. That's good. That, that's what humble humans do. But when glory comes to God, deep down we think he should say, oh, shucks. Come on, guys. You're embarrassing me. I mean, I'm God, I know, but I'm not. Well, I guess I am all that. I guess I am, actually. God does not say, oh, shuck, stop, you're embarrassing me. He says, yes, you were made to behold my glory and treasure my glory and, and display my glory and proclaim my glory in Christ fundamentally. Jesus is the precious cornerstone. That's what he's called. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I think a good definition of a Christian is someone who has actually beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. I think until you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, you can't even know what your sin really is. Uh, if it's not in light of who Jesus is, then you say with Peter, woe is me, I'm undone. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. If your understanding of sin doesn't come from seeing Jesus, it's going to come from comparing yourself to other people and find, finding somebody you're better than most of the time. And so we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see our sin for what it is. And when we see our sin that way, we would never think of going anywhere else but to Christ to solve our sin problem. Self-motivated, self-initiated Sin-solving can never work. It's got to be Jesus. He's precious in his person because he displays the glory of God. Don't you love how it says that Jesus is rejected by men? 
but precious to God. That's fundamentally why we need to find Christ precious, because he's precious to the Father. He's the precious son sent to save us. There's nothing more precious to the Father than his Son. That's why he says at the transfiguration and at his baptism, behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I'm well pleased in him. And so we find our identity in him. That's why he quotes here in this passage, Isaiah 28, 16, about the cornerstone, the precious cornerstone, which is the foundation stone. This, this is the stone that you build the building based upon and that sets the trajectory of the foundation of the building. You can't have the building without him. You can't have its structure. You can't have the way of living in the building. And what is amazing here is we become part of this building as living stones. We become part of what God is making grounded in Christ. We become part of what he adds to the building to make it what it is. The cornerstone determines everything. And then our honor is linked with our union with the precious cornerstone. And we rest in that. We don't seek to identify ourselves in all these different ways. You know, we're from New England. Don and I are from New England. And it was very interesting to move to Southern California as Christians because people think of Southern California and the rest of the country as this crazy place. Well, how could you live there? We have family members. How could you live there? It's, all, it's Babylon. And, 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 um, and we say, oh, yeah, there's bad stuff. But there are actually a lot of Christians. It's amazing. Don and I still get moved when we walk in a coffee shop and see people reading their Bible. We never saw that in, in New England where we grew up. We never saw somebody in a coffee shop reading their Bible. We, we never saw people praying together in a restaurant. And, and there's a benefit to that. One, because the average church is like 70 people. I think there are, correct me if I'm wrong, John, if you know, I think there are five churches in all of New England that had over 1,000 people. Isn't that amazing? And so there's something about that environment where when you go to the supermarket and you see one of those other 70 Christians you know in your town that go to your church, it doesn't matter if you're completely different in all the superficial ways. You know, it could be the big man on campus athlete and the, the brilliant, geeky Star Wars computer guy, and they come together and they say, hey, how's it going? You have a bond because of Jesus that, that supersedes all those demographic differences that tend to identify us so wrongly. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is very God of very God. He's the perfect man, but without sin. He's the first, the last, the alpha, omega. His disciples were told not to talk about him. Okay, heal if you must, they're told in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are, heal if you must, but stop talking about Jesus. And they basically say, oh, you don't realize that's no longer an option for us. Because we saw who he is. We saw his character, his holiness. He never sinned. In all the years we were close with him, he never sinned. We can't think of one time. He was compassionate. We thought he'd reject people, and he loved and hugged lepers and tax collectors and drunkards. We thought he'd bow before the religious leaders, and he called them whitewashed tombs. He had backbone, too. This Jesus was kind and compassionate and always wise. We thought we knew better so often, but he always knew the best way. 
to the best goals, always. He was forgiving. Peter would really emphasize that one and say, I denied him three times, and he came looking for me to forgive me, not to beat me up. He was humble. He loved the poor. He washed our feet as the last thing he did with us. And he died for us. And he rose for us. And he's interceding for us. And he's coming back for us because he's precious in his person. And he's precious in his work that he does for us. He mediates between us and God. He rescues us. He's rejected by men. But his teaching was like no one had ever heard. People would gather in throngs to find him. His miracles showed he was taking back his world that he created from the bondage of Satan. His righteousness, his sacrificial life, his transforming work that goes on in our lives make him so precious, not just to God the Father, but to us. And through our union with him, he is the most precious person, the most precious thing we could ever find in life. And that means he's our treasure. Uh, We've got to think about where our treasure is because Jesus says, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you worship your treasure. Um, That doesn't mean we don't have things we treasure in life on a human level. It doesn't mean we don't have precious things. When I ask you what you treasure, what what are things that come to mind? Just raise your hand and tell me something you treasure. What do you treasure? What is it? Jesus, well, good for you. There you go. Let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> way to go. I love that little one. That's beautiful. What, what else do you treasure? Uh, let's, I'm going to give you complete permission to talk about a car. Really. I'll just, I'll just tell you. When I, when material possessions, what are my, my favorite material possessions? I would say one of them I immediately think of, quite frankly, I travel a lot. Noise cancellation headphones are one of the best inventions of all time. Oh, my. It's wonderful. I can sleep. I actually used them last night, staying in our Whispering Pines to sleep. So, um, yeah, I, I, I actually, my car, I have a Toyota Camry, not what you were expecting, um, a 2014, 11, no, 14 Toyota Camry. But here's why I, I value this. Check out how we got this car. So I was talking to this guy I know from Biola in the parking lot at Biola. And, and we talked, and they're really into orphan care, and they love our church and our ministry and what we do at Biola. And so, so I talked to him for a while, 15, 20 minutes in the parking lot. He emails me the next day, and he says, Hey, Eric, it was good to see you yesterday. And I hope this isn't insulting to you, but I couldn't help but notice that your car looked like it might not get home. It was a Ford Escort wagon, I'll have you know. And, I sa- and he said, I thought we should do something about that. And I said, you know, I, I'm fine. I'm, my kids make fun of my car all the time. It's not insulting to me. They always choose. And he said, and I did some research, and I found out your wife has a, a good car. That's good. But, you know, you travel a lot, take the kids places. Don't, I think we should get another car. And I thought he was saying, you know, I got a friend with a used car dealer. I'll get him a good. And I said, you know what, I'm going to get like 10 years out of this thing. And he said, all right. Then he emails me back a couple hours later, and he said, I just bought you a brand-new Toyota Camry. Just go pick it up at the dealer tomorrow. 
I called my friend, and Dave, the same guy I was talking about before, I said, Dave, this guy's given us a car. I know 20 people who could use a car more than we could. And Dave said, don't manage his generosity. Take the gift, you idiot. <laughs> and, and, so, and so he gave us this car. I got to tell you, I mean, it's a Toyota Camry. It's a, it's a good car. But the way God provided through this man and woman, it, that car's really special. And it's not the car, right? It's like the temple where you met with God was an amazingly awesome and special place. But it's what it meant. It's what it represented relationally with people. You know, maybe you have a ring your grandmother gave you when she died. See, it's not the ring, is it? It's what it represents relationally. And so things in life can and should have importance for us but only because of what it means relationally with God. Thinking of the way, reminding us of the way he provides for us. Doing things in our lives that, that we then set Ebenezer stones up that can serve. A car can serve that purpose. A ring can serve that purpose. Something God blesses you with that he provides for you can serve the purpose of glorifying him and worshiping him. Or it can become an idol like that. It can divert your attention from God and his glory. That's why we need to preach Christ Centrally, foundationally, constantly. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He realized that when you see Jesus as precious, it changes everything. Your heart, your emotions, your life, your behavior. Listen to Spurgeon. The whole history of the ancient church of Christ proves that Jesus has been an object of his people's highest veneration. That they set nothing in rivalry with him, but cheerfully and readily gave up all for Jesus. And rejoiced in doing so. It's never, oh, I've given up everything for Jesus. No, it's I found that God is good. And I've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it's changed everything for me. And so we need to deepen our feeling of the preciousness of Christ to us. And when things start to have rivalry with him, push them aside and see them in their proper perspective. Because when we've tasted and seen that God is good and found his loving kindness is better than life itself, it reorients everything in our lives. Listen to John Piper. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied if Jesus wasn't there? What do we really find precious? What is at the center of our lives? We need to never forget that the precious promise cornerstone, rejected by man, but precious to God, which means when we are thinking in Godward ways, he is more precious to us than anything else. When we find Christ, we find ourselves. That's what we're going to talk about the rest of the week. You know, we adopted Caroline, and we had just gotten to know Megan Marshman, who is Megan Fate at the time, when, who had spent most of her adult life at that time working with adolescent girls. And Don and I knew we needed help. So we met with Megan. She used to work here. And we said, Megan, what do we know about adolescent girls? And she said, here's what I found out. 
Almost every girl I've ever met, very early in her life, started to define herself by a word or two. Sometimes it's smart. Sometimes it's pretty. Sometimes it's dumb or ugly. And that's tragic. And it, it almost doesn't matter if it's a positive or a negative word. When you define yourself by a word, a talent, an ability, and we, I hear parents do this sometimes. Oh, this is our little student. This is our athlete. This is our creative one. This is our funny one. It, it's fine to affirm kids for things, but, but over time, we can carry out the rest of our lives something a coach said to us in sixth grade, and it bears so much weight in how we view ourselves. And we have got to do everything we can as the people of God to come together, to go to the pure spiritual milk of the word, depend on the spirit, and encourage each other to look to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said that, no, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones said, for every one look at ourselves, we should take ten looks at Christ. I think we kind of have that reversed. For every one look at ourselves, for every one look at Christ, we take ten looks at ourselves. doesn't mean you ignore who you are, what you've been through, things you battle, things in your life. Celebrate the gifts God's given you. But Jesus has got to be the one upon whom we fix our gaze. He's got to be. Help us, Lord, to be fixed on you. Help us to remember who we are and most of all who you are. Help us to more and more each day taste and see that you are good. And behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I pray that he would be taking more and more territory of our hearts and minds and daily lives. Because we have truly seen that he is the most precious of all. And we pray this in his mighty and matchless and wise and good and powerful name. Amen.